Hello there, my name is Noah Guyberson, and I'm here alongside my co-hosts M. Hi. And Rob. Hi there. We are the hosts of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. And today I am very pleased to welcome our special guest, Christina Parsons. Hello. <laughs> welcome, Christina. We are so excited uh, that you're here joining us. Christina is a museum curator and design enthusiast who has worked at Cooper Hewitt and MoMA and currently curates at the Jewish Museum in New York City. Welcome, Christina. How are you doing? I'm really good. I'm so happy to be with you all. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Christina, in addition to your life uh, in you know the museum world and in curation, I hear that you are also a former very talented swimmer. I'm sure that you're still very talented at swimming. I just mean to imply that we have another very talented swimmer uh who who is washed up um <laughs> yeah, in that, Rob that be we, ha- we have a very <laughs> technical term for these people we call them swammers um, <laughs> nice. it's a very exclusive club um so h- how do you feel like your life as a competitive swimmer prepared you for the cutthroat world of museum curation oh yes um well everything is a race everything is a competition um even though swimming is an individual sport technically you're supposed to work in a team so i try to do that every once in a while it's um a great uh occupation for people who don't like being in front of people uh you can spend a lot of time with books uh researching you do a lot of writing you do a lot of thinking And then um, if you're organizing an exhibition, then there's a big push of doing all of the practical non-theory stuff where it's like, well, that's not going to fit in a museum or that lives somewhere else and you have to figure out how to get it here. Um, And so there's a bit of the (laughs) push of the practical side, but mostly you just get to live in your own thoughts and live in theory land, which is a nice (laughs) um, utopian place to live. I I just find it so cool, the things that like um, are curated. Like, I think people have an idea of like an art museum or a design museum, what goes inside. And uh, it's just like, can you give us uh, like a quick spectral like range of what are all the things that you've you've curated or seen? Like what topics do you cover that people wouldn't expect in a museum? It was a that was just a clip from an engineer asks what a museum is like. <laughs> can we get a spectral analysis? Central casting, can we send in? <laughs> Um, Yeah, I I would say that most of the um, work that I do in the museums that I've been working in um, take a specific object. So it can be a work of art or it could be something that's part of our everyday kind of an object of popular culture um, and uses that as a launching point to start a conversation. Um, So if you think of that individual object as one node, then a curator's job in some ways to think about all of the different nodes that can come together to create a larger conversation, space for larger reflection. Um, You have ways of then researching those to create connections between the two that maybe unveil something about the world around us that people hadn't considered in that way before. Um, So it it can be kind of methodical in that way. 
But there's, of course, I think the great thing is that there's a lot of room for other people to layer in their own life experiences when they come in. So the museum can present something to you and it has maybe a certain cachet because it's within the walls of an institution, but everyone that comes in and sees something and interacts with it comes with their own life experience, their own perspective, um, their own biases, and so they're then able to kind of layer in another part um, of the story of that object and the way that it exists in our society. That's very interesting, and I'm really eager to get uh, your perspective on what we do in fax machine, which is like, <laughs> here's something we're like, that's silly. People did that. And then we kind of explore it more. So I'm, I'm eager for this masterclass in our own podcast. Yeah. It's, it's, story, it's storytelling, right. And figuring out um, how people build worlds around them and uh, engage in different perspectives and think through what reality is. I mean, you can be very existential or you could be very practical. Well, on that note, uh, let's talk a little bit about how we're going to try to achieve that today. In every episode of Facts Machine, each of us shares one fascinating fact, along with the incredible story behind it. And finally, we wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. This week, our theme is World's Fairs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You may have seen them depicted in various media, usually a long time ago. It doesn't really feel like the kind of thing that happens all the time, um, but they, they do happen now even today Still, yeah um, yeah i was surprised <laughs> often referred to as like expo or like world expos but you think i feel like my internal representation of a world's fair is like step right up to the amazing thing like <laughs> the never before seen i don't know gramophone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no you're encroaching on my intellectual property with your I old time i know <laughs> uh okay and with that em take it away thanks very much So this week, I learned that the Tempest Prognosticator, which is what it sounds like, but in a very unexpected way, debuted at the first ever World's Fair, London's Great Exhibition of 1851. So the Great Exhibition, uh, which was short for the Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, was held in Hyde Park in London over five months in 1851. And basically... In 1851, Britain had basically conquered all the nations, too. So it was really... Just one nation's one nation, and then Britain's aspirations. Yes, they're like I'm PS Empire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, basically happened because Queen Victoria wanted to just like flex the British Empire. Um, <laughs> it was very focused on British technology and manufacturing and culture, but also featured lots of raw materials and handicrafts from various British colonies. So, as you just mentioned, it was in a way a world's fair, but just like. You know, the sun never sets in the British world at the time, so <laughs> yeah. that was the World's Fair. Um, but like all the World's Fairs that came after it, it did feature a lot of exhibits, including, um, as far as I could tell, a lot of big-ass diamonds. Like, people were just very into showing off gigantic diamonds back then. Um, also, the first-ever pay toilets, which were not technically an exhibit, but I would consider them an interactive exhibit. <laughs> um, an early prototype of the fax machine... Ooh. Yeah. Huh. Which also, another prototype was debuted at a subsequent World's Fair, and I actually spent some time trying to like make this fact slash story about fax machines. But as a deterrent, it's really boring. Just don't try it. Like I really <laughs> wanted to wrangle a fax machine story, and it was like this should not happen. Note to listeners: benefit. fax machines are boring. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they invented it. 
we perfected it. Right. Um, <laughs> and another exhibition uh, was this instrument called the Tempest Prognosticator. So it was invented by a doctor and inventor named George Merriweather, right? Oh. Already off to a good start. Um, and as a doctor in the 19th century, he kept leeches as part of his medical practice. And he noticed that they seemed to get kind of like agitated during certain atmospheric conditions. Um, so as an inventor in the 19th century, he thought, I should make a weather predictor using leeches. Because that was, that was just what you did back then. Huh. Um, so he enlisted the help of some local craftsmen and built the Tempest Prognosticator, which... If you picture it, it looks like a little carousel, but stationary, with a bunch of bells on top, and then at the bottom, instead of ponies, just bottles of leeches. <laughs> so, wow. So each bottle um, had a leech and some rainwater, and they were purposefully arranged in a circle so that the leeches would see each other, and as Merriweather put it, wouldn't get lonely. Like, that was part <laughs> of the intention of that design. Um, <laughs> Each bottle's cap, so each bottle had one leech, some water, and in its cap there was a piece of whalebone that was then attached to a string that ran from the bottle to the top of the carousel where it was attached to a bell. So whenever a leech would like bump into the whalebone um, because it felt a storm was coming on and crawled out of the water, it would hit the whalebone, ring the bell, and then you would hear of the oncoming storm, which my mind immediately went to like imagining like the, that dramatic moment in like a storm movie where the characters are like, ah, the big one, it's coming. But like, instead of like a tornado in the distance or like the crest of a giant wave, it's just like a clamor of tiny bells and like a bunch of like frenzied leeches and bottles. I can I I'm, I'm just out, imagining but. like a ride of the Valkyries, but with leeches, like... Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining like how Disney would do it, and there's like I was a just gonna say. leech, and it like looks up, and it's like ah, and it like starts pulling as hard as it can. <laughs> oh, I thought actually by uh, sleepy leech, I thought you were gonna say that there are gonna be like seven leeches. There's a sleepy one, a dopey one, <laughs> one that inexplicably was a doctor, maybe because it had been used in their Victorian medicine. Can we agree uh, that Doc yeah. from Snow White was definitely a PhD because he was useless in the medical field? <laughs> not that kind of doctor <laughs> oh man pixar get on this we need a short of this entire scenario right now well the dwarves um, were pretty short <laughs> fair enough um but yeah so i was wondering about like the specific behaviors that he noticed and basically their supposed like correlation to weather patterns in terms of them being predictive um and according to a very mysterious instructional document that i found like attached to the wikipedia page for this um i tried digging up information on it and like i found like a name and an open source kind of like website for documents that it was uploaded to but no other information but it's titled looking after your leech barometer so we're just going to take its advice you know, on the surface for what it is. But apparently, in terms of the interpretations that you would derive, um, if the leech takes up a position at the bottle's neck, it's going to rain. Um, if he is in continual movement, then thunder and lightning are coming soon. If he's moving rapidly about, expect strong wind when he stops, which, again, lies in mental image. I just love <laughs> just, the leech is like in a frenzy and they stop and everyone's like, take cover, the twister's coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, if he uh, is just hanging out in the bottom of his little bottle um, and is coiled up, then the weather's fine. So that's how you know, like, smooth sailing. It's all good. Um, or he's just tired from being very agitated and moving around previously. I think that one's a little iffy. Um, and also, if it's in a fixed position, very cold weather is certain to follow, um, which... <laughs> 
Okay. Maybe or if he's, in a, he's in a fixed position where he's very cold and very hard, then very cold weather has proceeded. Yes. <laughs> oh um, I will say of all the, that, that was just like a few of the predictions on this page. Um, there were none that had to do with um, anticipating hot weather, but I assume that would have been like a patch for the next upgrade of the prognosticator <laughs> or something like that. They just, they didn't get to that point, I guess. They don't have that weather in, in the UK. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> There was not a need. That's true. Um, so, oh yeah. So I, just, I think 1851 was also the uh, World's Fair Great Exhibition or whatever it was called, where um, the Crystal Palace was. was yes. Oh before. yeah. Yeah. Um, and I always thought that was a really interesting building um, because it it was I think it was almost a million square feet, and it was like designed specifically to be the exhibition space, and it was entirely like sheet like plate glass um and it's a really like if you look up these old pictures because it doesn't exist anymore but if you look up these pictures of it it's like it would have been an extraordinary sight like this a huge it's like it's kind of like the javits center except like way cooler looking and it's just like all glass but uh, it was three times the size of saint paul's cathedral and just another little architectural just uh like flourish is that it was you know for the 1851 um, you know, great exhibition, and it was 1,851 1, feet long. Emily, is this, is the leech barometer where we get the old saying, leeches a swarm in, sailors take warning, leeches lay tight, <laughs> sailors delight? Is it? Did you just make that up? <laughs> Took a minute, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> the one that we had in California was about the snakes, like red on yellow and something mm. mellow. Oh, Clearly it's very helpful because I can't remember it. So if I saw a snake, that's red like on cor- black. Coral snakes. Will and, attack. Um, <laughs> or a copper? Yeah, copperheads. Right, because one is poisonous and the other mimics the poisonous one, but is safe. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> just like a I snake Just avoid all up. of them. Just avoid all the snakes. I think that's generally solid advice. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways... Meriwether built his prognosticator, and he filled it with prophetic leeches, and he was so ecstatic with the results that he started writing letters to his colleagues at the Whitby Philosophical Society, essentially to warn them of upcoming storms. Um, so, oh yeah, he just leapt right in. So, Unfortunately, his idea of carrier leeches did not work as well as he wanted to, and the messages never quite arrived before the storm did. <laughs> yeah, still in development. Um, so all the records of his predictions are now stored at the Whippy Museum in the UK. But I saw a few people's responses to his letters. Um, and I have to say they're all just very, like, unjustifiably enthusiastic. And I say this because the prognosticator had a stipulation that no one seemed to take issue with, which was that it couldn't tell you when a storm was coming or from where or how bad it would be, just that there would be a weather eventually of some kind so for example so 100 percent correct all the time there will eventually be weather exactly it's a bit like the oh my god the character in mean girls we just you know uh yeah it's like i can i can tell if it's already raining i think i have espn or something that is essentially as effective as the tempest prognosticator um but so for example one response to his letters uh read your prophetic words are verified, with the exception of about 12 hours. Okay, that's not so, so bad. But then another, um, from a London news article that was written actually in praise of the prognosticator, 
reads, The disastrous storm of the month of October 1850 was foretold and communicated by letter 51 hours and a half before it took place. (laughs) But but still, so you're just kind of like, the leeches are moving, and then you just wait for whenever the next storm comes. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, it's the leeches. Anyways. Sounds like the worst thing for chronically anxious people. (laughs) Just like, oh, something's going to happen. (laughs) just sometime um but yeah so confirmation bias is a hell of a drug and uh (laughs) meriwether was so fueled by the positive reviews and the great exhibition showing um that he went as far as proposing that prognosticators be installed at every coastal station in britain and that a giant one be constructed on top of saint paul's cathedral in london so all the londoners (laughs) could see the frolicking leeches for themselves and be aware of an impending tempest. Um, but in there, there were giant sea slugs instead. <laughs> <laughs> to scale, yes. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, uh, his leech-filled delusions of grandeur were not in the forecast. So the Tempest prognosticator's fame kind of faded after the Great Exhibition, um, and it's now considered to be, as you'd expect, nonsense. Um, I will say I did look into a little into whether there was any like actual science to back it up and found that leeches are known to leave water when it has low oxygen levels. So they'll basically go above to the air to just be able to breathe better. Um, and drops in barometric pressure can actually reduce the concentration of dissolved oxygen in water. So if the leeches maybe sensed that um, as the pressure dropped and a storm was approaching, then maybe they would leave the water. But honestly, probably not from what I can tell. <laughs> um, but this story, uh, in particular, uh, all of its kind of misplaced enthusiasm for pseudoscience does tell us about the state of meteorology at the time. So to give a very brief history of weather prediction, we couldn't really do it in any data-driven or modeling-based way until the 20th century. Um, and even when the first barometers and thermometers and, mether- and, no, <laughs> and weather measuring tools uh, started to appear towards the end of the Renaissance, um, while we did begin to gain some scientific understanding about the weather, it was still not enough to inform any predictions apart from like, anecdotal observations um, that were still you know, mostly just coincidental. Even with the barometers, which early on people were noticing that, um, you know, they would change in appearance as the storm was approaching. They weren't really used um, to sort of like predict and capture atmospheric changes preceding storms in any kind of like um, sort of like regulated or applied way until the 19th century. So for a long time, it was just all mystical. And honestly, it still kind of is. Um, but this brings us to the 19th. Oh, no. Yeah. But this brings us to the 19th century, um, when we still couldn't predict weather, see, the Tempest prognosticator, um, but we began to understand more about its fundamentals um, in terms of, for example, how storms actually work. Um, And we're also getting better at actually tracking and recording weather patterns um, in a concerted and more scientific way. And very importantly, thanks to the invention of the telegraph, it also became possible to quickly communicate local weather conditions and warn neighboring communities about oncoming storms. So Robert Fitzroy, who was on the pod actually a few episodes ago for requesting Charles Darwin's companionship when he captained yeah. yep, Her Majesty's ship, the Beagle, uh, he actually spearheaded this effort of reporting and disseminating news of local weather in Britain. Um, and by 10 years after the Great Exhibition and the Tempest Prognosticator's debut, the British Royal Navy had gathered a ton of weather data, was writing up all sorts of charts, and coastal stations were telegraphing weather conditions to each other and even to the Times newspaper in London for daily recording. 
Um, at the same time in the U.S., the National Weather Service actually came into existence by doing pretty much the same thing. Um, and actually, the term forecasting was coined by Robert Fitzroy uh, as, part of the, as part of this work, wow. essentially. So although George Mayweather's invention didn't weather the test of time, um, I would like to leave you with a few quotes from his writings that tell an adjacent but I think happier tale. So I mentioned earlier that he arranged the leeches in a circular formation to, well, in his words, um, prevent them from enduring the affliction of solitary confinement. So he cared about them. He didn't want them to be lonely. He also referred to his leeches quite lovingly as his council of philosophers and wrote, <laughs> some of them have over and over again thrown themselves into graceful undulations when I have approached them, I suppose as an expression of their being glad to see me. Which I think just goes to show it's not about the tempests you prognosticate, but the friends you make along the way. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> this this just reminded me of the plan for basically nuclear reporting in animals. Um, oh. So humans... Um, made a lot of nuclear stuff. It's a thing we do. And then we bury it or whatever. And they're like, how are we going to communicate this to future generations? And I feel like I must have talked about this with one of you. <laughs> it seems like the stuff we talk about. Well, you don't know any other people. That's, so. that's true. <laughs> had um, to be. But they had a plan that was like never, never enacted. But could they introduce a gene into wild mammals that basically like a Geiger counter in the presence of radioactivity would activate a green fluorescent protein so that if wild animals wandered over radiation like 10,000 years from now, they would have inherited this uh, radiation-activated glowing gene, and humans or whatever species is in, like, you know, the most smart would see it and associate it with radiation and, like, run away. And so, like, we could create you know, this response. You know, like, how we exterminated all the fireflies. <laughs> Wait. And we don't love them and put them in jars and <laughs> hang out with oh. us all the time. <laughs> what if, what if, like, there was an ancient society that buried loads of nuclear material and they did that to fireflies, and we just frolic through the fields of fireflies, just being irradiated? That's true. <laughs> we would have to know that it means something bad, and we're not that smart. <laughs> Wait, but so the idea behind it though is to get humans to associate glowing greenness with radiation basically yeah in the absence of language just have this like natural reporting that any species that sees like oh that thing's glowing green this is a bad place to be so i think the uh, as rob said like the issue is that if you bury something that's going to take tens of thousands of years best case to like break down and stop being dangerous okay whatever like the signs that you put there still have to be like meaningful to people who may not even share the same language or like have the same symbology that you do. Yeah. So yeah, like that's yeah. like it's a big design question. Which makes you Luckily, Christina's here. <laughs> that's not one we've solved. <laughs> it makes okay. you just put them all in museums. <laughs> this makes you wonder if like a dinosaur biochemist like like made leeches so that whenever like the pressure changes they like start moving. They're like, this will mean something to people in the future. <laughs> When when you feel the pressure change from a meteor, it's too late. That's <laughs> yeah, true. No amount of GFP will help you there. <laughs> I will say California has fireflies, but the species of fireflies that are in California don't actually glow. So they're not huh. they're technically still a firefly, but they don't actually tell anyone about their radiation that they're trying to communicate. California is safe. 
<laughs> Everyone move to the West Coast. West Coast, best coast. <laughs> this week I learned that the house of the future is in the past. Ooh. <laughs> oh, do tell. Yes. So, is it just someone who lives in a DeLorean? <laughs> No, that's another. That's we are going to do a whole another Back to the Future theme show. I I hope. Um, but, I'm here for that. But this this is about uh, kind of the the persistence of the idea that World's Fairs demonstrate what's going to happen in the future, and so World's Fairs are largely showing a world that we could live in uh, rather than the world that we do. And to look into this a little bit more, it's just an opportunity for me to tell you about one of uh, one of my favorite architects engineers and thinkers and how his futuristic dreaming led to the acceptance but maybe the kind of otherification of a whole branch of architecture um so this kind of i would say has always been in world's fairs forward thinking technological displays um but looking back i i'm gonna pick on a few kind of cherry-picked historical events one of which is in 1930 the creation of something called the Dymaxion House. Um, and are you familiar with Dymaxion? Christina is reacting. <laughs> the Dymaxion House and the, the idea of Dymaxion is something that I am absolutely in love with and have been for years. Uh, so it is the brainchild of Buckminster Fuller, uh, who the laboratory scientists might know for um, his kind of uh, conceptualization of Buckminster Fullerene, uh, the carbon structure that is a geodesic dome. Um, and so Buckminster Fuller was an incredible 20th century thinker. Um, Dymaxion is a, is a sort of portmanteau for dynamic maximum tension. Um, and it is basically just turning the, uh, turning the idea of a car and a house on its head uh, to achieve kind of much more realistic or what much more kind of practical achievements. So the Dymaxion car is a three-wheeled car that looks like a submarine that has a turning <laughs> radius that is approximately like six inches longer than the car itself. Um, <laughs> it is just an incredible engineering idea that was fuel efficient, that was cheaper to produce, but it just looked ridiculous. And so it was never a commercial viable success. Um, the Dymaxion house was something that he introduced in 1930. Um, and he actually like kind of pushed this idea of a super efficient house. So the Dymaxion house is a it's a round house um, where basically everything is. She's a round <laughs> house. <laughs> yes, this has nothing to do with um, oh, what's his name? Chuck Norris. No, no Chuck no. Norris involved. Um, but roundhouse kick anyway okay. <laughs> oh but it is a it is a circular house um i think it's corrugated metal sides um and just like incredibly efficient design for heat um and one of the major ideas that buckminster fuller uh believed in was maximum volume for minimum surface area and so so what he wanted was a house that was fuller yes he <sighs> <laughs> Isn't there a show about that on Netflix now? Yes. It's, <laughs> it's all about geodesic domes. <laughs> I would sooner watch it if it was. <laughs> um, but so he, he designed these houses. And he actually drew up what a suburb would look like. Kind of like 
Um, if you remember, actually speaking, if we were a minute ago, speaking of Back to the Future, when you see in the 50s these maps of the new suburbs and what they're going to look like, and like, you know, all made of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. Uh, he made a suburb of little round houses that were all fuel efficient, energy efficient, like well insulated, but they kind of all looked like small UFOs. Um, <laughs> and so they were, again, like distinctly unpopular among consumers. Uh, but they were they were cheap to build. And he really thought this would be a solution for the Great Depression, for kind of lowering costs of production. And I think he I think he never understood why people didn't understand him, uh, which is kind of one of the amazing things. He, he was such a dynamic thinker, um, but he, he pushed the house in 1930. He remodeled it in 1945 when kind of the depression and the war had ended um, and it still never caught on. And so the 1933 World's Fair is where I want to tie into our theme first. So in that World's Fair is the Chicago Grand Expo. Um, and there was a famous exhibit called the 1933 Homes of Tomorrow exhibition, and it featured, uh, numerous architects of the day and all these different styles of homes that they made. Um, and this actually just came up last year, uh, because they were built in Chicago, um, kept for the World's Fair. The 1933 World's Fair is an exceptional World's Fair for a number of reasons. Um, it's the only World's Fair that ever basically paid for itself. Um, they extended it past the end date because it was a financial success, and they, it went for almost two years. Um, and it paid it paid back the bonds during the Great Depression, uh, which is a remarkable thing to think about. That it was like a it was a financial success. Um, it it uh, had tons of expos and all the things you find at a World's Fair. And when they were done, they were actually able to kind of parse out pieces of it and sell them off. So this Houses of Tomorrow exhibit that featured um, a good housekeeping house, numerous architects, um, and some famous examples, one called the Florida Tropical House and another called the Cypress Log Cabin, uh, which were these kind of beautiful architectural designs that were forward thinking, but like traditional, but with a twist, um, they were kind of lauded as the future of American housing and not uh, Buckminster Fuller. Like, they looked nothing like Buckminster Fuller. They had, well, for one thing, they had corners. <laughs> they looked like homes. <laughs> uh, but so, uh, and I bring it up also because in 2019, um, they were put on the market. So they were barged across to Indiana. Uh, and you can now buy and refurbish one of the 1933 homes of the future, um, which are decidedly a little bit, uh, you know, past prime. Um, but so the selling price is not too bad, but the, the owners estimated it'd be two and a half million dollars to renovate them and make them livable again. Uh, but if you want to live in Indiana, that'd be a, you know, a cool way to do it. <laughs> These are kind of prefiguring the mail order catalog, um, houses that come after World War II, where you can literally order a prefab house from a Sears catalog. Um, and all of the pieces arrive and you're able to plop everything together on your own. And people are so enthused by these now that they'll go around the country trying to find and spot these Sears catalog homes, um, identify them, see what modifications have been made. They're kind of the, their oh, original yeah. tiny home. Huh, cool. That's super yeah. cool. Um, but so th those were the homes that were popular like these captured the imagination and like were a commercial success in a way or they they led to the next stage of american home building um 
but they, for that, don't look particularly futuristic. Um, and Buckminster Fuller kind of kept going on his own, being this maverick engineer architect, trying to make people see that his ideas were better. Um, so there's a 30-odd year gap between him introducing the Dymaxion house and what we might know is one of the best examples in a World's Fair of his design, which is um, 1967 Expo in Montreal, the Montreal Biosphere. Um, and so I'll mention that in a second. In the meantime, though, <clears throat> in that 37-year span, he wrote some of the most interesting kind of philosophy uh, that, that I've ever read. And so he hated the idea of Earth like any conception of Earth, <laughs> full stop. <laughs> Stu- stupid. I'm planet. designing things so we can live on the moon. <laughs> well, and I'll also tell you in a second about the huge influence he had on the on sci-fi. Um, but so he he hated the idea of of Earth as a flat object, which I think we can all relate to now. Uh, Look, it's the way Earth is. Okay, you can't hate. <laughs> but like, so people would say like, oh, this thing went up and this thing went down. And he thought that that was like not just like inaccurate, but dangerous. He wanted to say this object went out or this object went in because we should think about the three-dimensional sphere of Earth. And if you drop something, you drop it in. And if you throw it, you throw it out. Uh, and it just like there's nothing wrong with that. We just don't do that because we think in like this very flat, small piece of the world that we live in. But it would be so easy to just use those words and then kind of internalize this idea of radiating outward and, and kind of collapsing inward. I think that's one of my favorite things about um, the ways that um, people like Buck, Buckminster Fuller write is that they're so careful with the rhetoric and their vocabulary and they're so deliberate that it really is a way of world building and changing perspective in the, specific, the specificity of the terms that they use. It's really challenging you to rethink things, not only in the visual appearance, but also in kind of the yeah. way you experience them through text. And so he, he bought into all of this. He really thought that uh, the language we use affects the way we think, and it also limits the way we think. And so you could then kind of unlimit the way you think by changing your language. Uh, and that also applies to designs and structures and shapes. So the shape that he is most famous for is uh, the geodesic dome. Uh, which is the shape of Buckminster Fullerene. And it is, I believe, in, in kind of the... It's, I believe, a 60-sided shape. Um, and it is it is as close to a sphere as you might hope to build out of triangles. Um, and so it maximizes volume for surface area, which makes it a, a very uh, attractive engineering goal. And it also looks futuristic. It looks kind of impossibly new and different. And again, lacks lacks harsh corners, and so it, it is a a throwing. <laughs> I can't help but feel like you're describing me. <laughs> I, I really like the idea that people are attracted to the design principle of maximizing surface to volume, having no hard corners, being essentially shaped like a sphere. <laughs> thank you. You're making me feel so much better. Don't don't thank me. It's all Bucky. <laughs> Let's say to me, he sounds like a well-rounded individual in a world of squares. <laughs> yes, but uh, so the the geodesic dome, that perfect shape, that's maybe the most famous, especially associated with World's Fairs, is the nineteen sixty seven uh, Montreal Expo biome uh, or biosphere, and it is a tremendous, I believe, not the largest, but one of the largest geodesic domes that exists and still stands today. Um, 
And that was like a, a that was kind of a realization of what this shape could be, how powerful it can look, and it's it's a, like this marvelous clear glass structure that has all these um, levels inside of it. Uh, and it was uh, in 1967 actually a really interesting time because uh, Buckminster Fuller had established himself. He was famous and recognized, and was getting pretty big contracts. Um, and it shows like this real progression of how his thought was, was being, uh, like reanalyzed. And so it's in that kind of period from the sixties onward, uh, that his work is really much more appreciated. And you do see geodesic domes kind of popping up, um, all over, not all over the place. There are dozens of them like in architecture. Um, so even as early as the 1939 world's fair, Elements of the geodesic dome were making it into world's fairs. So the uh, the Queen's aviary, part of the Queen's zoo, has a geodesic dome. It's just not a full sphere. It's kind of it's a dome, a glass dome on top of the building, uh, and that was that was an early kind of rendering of it in real life. But also at a world's fair, still very futuristic. Um, by the '60s, it was huge. It was the centerpiece. Uh, and what we might know as the most famous geodesic dome is Ebcot. Uh, which was finished in 1982. And I want to just tie in all the people who who make this thing so interesting. So Epcot was an inspiration of Ray Bradbury, the author, um, who was, of course, inspired physically by Buckminster Fuller. But there were a lot of other people who bought into this idea that the geodesic dome was this perfect futuristic shape. And the other one is Robert Heinlein. Robert Heinlein was one of the big three uh, of, of English science fiction writers up there with Isaac Asimov uh, and who would be oh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. They were like the big three. And he wrote Starship Troopers and Stranger in a Strangeland, these kind of uh, early masterpieces of what's called hard science fiction, where he really rigorously studied the science so that it wasn't a ridiculous story. Um, and so there's this, this really beautiful marriage of creativity, but also rigorous principle um, that gets you a geodesic dome or a story like Stranger in a Strange Land uh, that that really pulls you into this mythos, this kind of this is possible, and it's just that you've never seen it before, but it's not unreal. Um, so all of these uh, huge minds in science fiction were now buying into the Buckminster Fuller idea, and that's by 1982. Um, for for the New Yorkers, uh, when the Mets were being founded as a team, they actually. Um, gave Buckminster Fuller a contract to build what would be uh, Shea Stadium. And he was like, geodesic dome. And they were like, no. <laughs> Just, <laughs> what were they expecting? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, then we got the Astrodome. kind of his thing. <laughs> yeah. But they, they turned him down. Even in, like, by the late 60s or the mid-60s, the Mets were not ready, or, like, New York society was not ready for the geodesic dome to be a real thing. It was still whimsical uh, and imaginative. So Epcot is sort of where the geodesic dome peaks i think like that's where it hit its high but so i think it's so interesting that all these houses of the future that were projected um they they were put into the world's fair not so much because they were more dynamic or more interesting but just because they were you know there was some stake holders someone who sorry that was someone holding stake the way i said it there are some there were some some angry butchers who walked outside. <laughs> you want these? <laughs> there were some stakeholders, like architecture firms, that were paying for it, that were actually going to do it. And it wasn't so much a place to see a new idea uh, as, as a place to just kind of get a glimpse of what was already in the pipeline. 
Um, and this is just a, a, a quick opportunity for me to bring up one other thing related to Disney World and the House of the Future. Um, so you've all heard of Monsanto, right? Yeah. It doesn't have the best <laughs> PR these days. Um, in, in the year 1957, uh, they imagined what the house of 1980 would look like. Um, and it kind of, honestly, I could see this house being somewhere in like Beverly Hills. It like is a fashionable looking futuristic house, but Monsanto built the plastic house in which every element of construction, including the windows, the chairs, like the, the beams and the struts were plastic. Um, yes. That is that is what the world gave it. Emily gives it a resounding thumbs down. That was a thumbs, thumbs down. down. <laughs> yeah. Monsanto at their usual tricks. All right, Christina, blow us away. Great. So what I was thinking about this week, of course, has some element of a competition, because what do I do that doesn't involve a competition? Um, this one between Paris and New York. Um, but... Um, I really want to focus on the 1964 World's Fair in New York, and that might produce images of the notorious developer Robert Moses. Um, GM had an exhibition called Futurama, which presented speculative visions of society, as Rob has been talking about. Um, we can also blame the 1964 World's Fair for giving us uh, It's a Small World. Walt Disney presented that at the UNICEF Pavilion, so there you go. Um, but fewer people know that the 1964 World's Fair in Queens was also the site of the first televised fashion show. Um, fashion and World's Fairs have a long-standing relationship, but this particular incident gets at the heart of World's Fairs as a concept, namely using material culture to develop and promote a national identity on an international stage. So to look at the development of this relationship between fashion and World's Fair, um, and this relationship's impact on American culture and dress practice, the way we clothe ourselves at large, we have to go back to the 19th century. Um, so this story starts at the 1893 World's Fair. It's the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Um, that fair was organized to correspond to the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus arriving in America. Boo. Controversial. Um, Boo. <laughs> it, it was 1893. <laughs> Yeah, they were a year off. <laughs> um, but this site in Chicago, um, in addition to being a kind of controversial site for urban planning in Chicago, they cleared a lot of low-income housing to make way um, for the fair site. Um, it was actually planned by Frederick Law Olmsted, which New Yorkers might know as being the same landscape architect who designed Central Park. Um, so World's Fairs... Um, particularly that one, are often overshadowed by kind of new innovations in industry. This one, perhaps best known today for the um, series of infamous murders by H.H. Holmes, captured oh. in Devil in the White City. Um, but while all of this kind of gruesome activity is happening, um, quietly, several Parisian dressmakers were exhibiting their very luxurious Victorian-style dresses, um, which caught the attention of buyers from the biggest department store in Chicago at the time, which was Marshall Fields. It also caught the attention of another, another huge retailer in Philadelphia, Wanamaker's. Um, both stores began importing Paris fashions after this show. They were so captivated by the designs that they saw, and just about every other department store in the U.S. started following suit after that, of course, including um, those in New York City. So are, are these... 
like just to picture it are these kind of like the frilly bottomed um like what kinds of accessories or or accents? every layer that you can think of um really high necks um so almost like turtleneck frilly lots of buttons you have um a corset underneath and then you have long sleeves you maybe have a big um kind of exaggerated bustled um bottom long draping fabrics. Um, if you think about maybe the 1920s when flappers kind of reigned supreme with this very loose columnar silhouette, it's the um, designs that, were, that flappers were kind of reacting to. So very constrictive, very manipulative, um, trying to change the shape of women's bodies in various ways. Okay, so like Akira Knightley, Pirates of the Caribbean, Gatsby. You got it, you got it, okay. yeah. <laughs> Um, so by 1914, the U.S. is completely enamored by these designs. U.S. department stores were 100% dependent on French fashions to dictate styles and trends. Um, and there are even stories of American buyers working for these department stores who went through great pains at great personal risk to continue obtaining garments from Paris, even as World War I was escalating in Europe. Um, fashion really being a life or death um, question in this incident. <laughs> um, by way of context, in this period in the early 20th century, Paris fashion has this really legendary status that is so deeply entrenched in the public imagination that you weren't a fashionable person fit for viewing in public if your clothing didn't somehow connect you to Parisian design. Um, fashionable dress had to either be an original design from Paris, so haute couture, or it had to be an American-made copy of haute couture, which was manufactured in the U.S. based on those garments that buyers were painstakingly dragging back from uh, France. Now, was the idea there that people who saw you in the American facsimile like, couldn't tell the difference? Or was it like, it has to at least look like this genre of clothing? So that's the interesting thing, is there's kind of shifting ideas around what is actually the best. Um, the Paris original haute couture has a certain price point that was only accessible to the very, very elite. If you were um, not able to purchase garments at that level, an American-made copy was perfectly acceptable. Um, and there's points at which later in history, um, department stores are really capitalizing on this idea of the American-made version almost being right. better in some ways. So, so this is the tension that you see playing out and building and building and building um, up to the 64 World's Fair, this question of national identity, um, buying power, who's setting the trends. And at this point, no one's really considering any designers in New York to be of note. Um, you don't think of uh, ingenuity or um, anything particularly innovative coming out of New York. New York didn't have this status as a fashion capital. Um, certainly nowhere else in the U.S. did either. So despite a few attempts um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s to elevate this reputation around American fashion, um, this most lauded vision of Paris fashion really only started to be challenged during the Great Depression, when it became too costly for department stores to continue importing French styles. So they're like, oops, we can't. How do we market this? Oh, wait. <laughs> Um, by 1935, actually, only about 1% of clothing sold in the U.S. was a Paris original or even an American-made copy. 
Uh, instead, department stores were really shifting their attention to purchasing, promoting, and selling the work of American designers. Um, fashion designers tend to credit this shift to Dorothy Shaver. She was the manager of the New York department store Lord & Taylor, and she really spearheaded this effort towards focusing on American design. She insisted on promoting the designs of Americans, um, many of whom were women, working uh, in the early 20th century. Furthermore, the economic climate of the Depression facilitated this wider embrace of more informal clothing, um, see yoga wear, uh, which was actually adopted from sportswear and became a specialty for American designers. So if we think back to the 1890s when those French dressmakers were showing their garments at the World's Fair in Chicago, sports clothing was really only meant to be worn while performing specific activities. And these, of course, are activities reserved for the upper classes. So archery, tennis, horseback riding, skiing. You'd have a specific The outfit. sports of the people. <laughs> the sports of the people. <laughs> so in the late 1920s, 1930s, those kind of casual sportswear precursor to athleisure um, were adopted by a broader segment of the population for wear in everyday life, partly because um, these clothes were made for cheaper fabrics to keep prices low. Um, and interestingly, trends that were dictating the fashion market at this time were increasingly coming from, believe it or not, California, um, rather than from Paris, due in large part to the um, increasing prominence of the motion picture industry. So Hollywood films of this period had a huge influence on American dress practice, both as design originators, so the costume designers who are creating pieces for the fashion are really dictating trends, um, and also these film studios had a huge role in disseminating fashion trends. There was a coordinated and intensive marketing campaign that paired the release of new Hollywood films with the sale of fashions worn by stars in each film. So screen styles such as those worn by Joan Crawford um, in the film Letty Linton, she has this really dramatically ruffled dress that's all white, um, was hugely popular. And Macy's claimed to have sold half a million Letty Linton dresses in the year the film was released in 1932. Wow. Um, interestingly, if you go back and are watching films of this period, there's often this moment where there's this seemingly random fashion show in the middle of the feature that has nothing to do with advancing the narrative or developing a character. It's just kind of like, pause, fashion show. Um, and this was very much deliberate in order to showcase the fashions that would then be marketed and sold as part of the film's release. Um, so this shift in prominence away from Parisian design and towards American-made um, designs continued to grow. And if we look, kind of circling this back um, to World's Fairs, at the 1939 World's Fair in New York, um, designs by leading American manufacturers were exhibited at a specific hall of fashions. And while five fashion shows were being presented each day at this pavilion, um, the US was still nearly 30, way, 30 years away um, from these kinds of presentations being accessible to the American population at large. It was only if you were able to visit this fair in person that you would have seen this kind of event. Um, the thing that kind of clinched this shift um, is in the 1940s, the emphasis on American design was really bolstered by the closing of um, haute couture houses during the Nazi occupation of Paris during World War II. There was no way to get French designs, even if they wanted them in the US. After the war, Paris did try to make a bit of a comeback and reassert its position in the hierarchy of fashion in the US 
when Christian Dior debuted a new silhouette for women's fashion in 1947, known as the New Look. So the New Look was very much a deliberate reaction to the austerity and rationing that dictated clothing during the war. If you imagine, um, if you're Marvel fans and you watch Agent Carter, for example, you can think of very uniformed, um, kind of broad-shouldered but straight-bodied um, garments. The new look had this flowing, voluminous skirt. It required several yards of fabric to produce, thus was very expensive. It had these rounded shoulders and a really tightly cinched waist. Um, with this um, kind of new trend for a new vision of femininity and feminine dress practices, Paris really reestablished itself as the leader of fashion trends, positioning itself at the forefront of style. And of course, American department stores were once again clamoring to get these designs. Um, as a kind of interesting um, story about how this is all working, this is something that I love doing, is not only looking at the objects and the stories, but also how they were then disseminated to the public. So in the mid-century after World War II, there's this really um, kind of complex and back-channel network that ensured that designs presented in Paris then appeared in the American press and thus on the production lines of American manufacturers at this really breakneck speed to facilitate all of the sales and demand. Um, reporters from mainstream media outlets were often banned from seeing new collections in Paris until several weeks after their, their debut to kind of counteract this. Um, yet there are stories that abound of undercover reporters often working for trade publications like the infamous um, Women's Wear Daily, which was published every day. Um, these reporters were interrogating models, buyers, and even socialites who had been invited to the fashion shows in order to glean an understanding of what had been shown. And inevitably, a description and then sometimes a sketch or an illustration appeared the following day in print in the U.S. It's it really sounds like you're describing like a police investigation <laughs> because not only are you interrogating people to try to figure out what someone was say wearing uh, <laughs> to try to figure out what was going on at a particular event. You're also producing sketches to try to help other people understand just in case they see it on the street. Yeah, that, that telegraph not only sends the weather of the leeches, but it also sends the fashions of the day. <laughs> and I'm picturing like a lineup too, just women in various dresses, like, all right, who did you see going down the runway? <laughs> yes, they're all, they're all smoking. <laughs> yes. Um, so just a few weeks often after these designs were shown in Paris, copies would appear for sale in stores across the U.S., there was this really vast network of producers who were bustling behind the scenes to bring these designs to life, and all of it, for the most part, happened here in New York in the city's garment district. So if you happen to have watched the TV show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you probably have a pretty good idea of dress racks and factories and lofts, um, all of which are the hub of this production. So that's like fast fashion, even back then. That's this is this is yeah. the emergence of ready-to-wear. When sizing had become standardized, you don't have a tailor making something bespoke for you that fits just your body and is custom. Instead, you're just pulling something off the rack that's ready to go. If we think about these department stores as being like a real hub for how these fashions are um, being uh, disseminated to the American public, um, places like Macy's were so eager to publicize the date by which their copies of French Couture would be available to purchase. There's great, great New York Times articles talking about the thousands of women that are flocking to New York um, 
for these presentations. Um, and it's everyone from the person on the street who is someone like us, who has kind of a smaller reduced buying power to someone like Lauren Bacall or um, a big Hollywood fashion star. They're all trying to get these same um, garments. And like I was saying, what's really interesting is that these advertisements really promote um, the renown of American-made copies as a particular key selling point that is actually making it more covetous for the customer. So one of the most controversial garments moving through this complex system of originals and copies and sparking huge debate in New York just before the 1964 World's Fair opens is a design by the French couturier uh, André Corrège. So in February, here we have our you know, rivalry, France and New York. Um, in February 1964, Courage had boldly proposed this new style for women that incorporated pants. Um, what? <laughs> About <the> time. <laughs> right, so pants, not a new concept um, and certainly not new to imagine women wearing in the 1960s. American women had adopted pants for wear outside the home and outside of those specific sporting activities um, during World War II, if you think about A League of Our Own, when involvement in the war effort uh, often necessitated this practical garment. But the practice of women wearing pants as part of everyday wear had largely disappeared in the more conservative environment of the immediate post-war period. So now we've kind of gone through this cycle. Fashion can be very cyclical in this way. And we're now in the early 60s when pants are kind of returning to the public consciousness. Courage in particular was designing not for this mature woman whose tastes and wallets had kind of dominated the post-war market, but instead for this growing contingent of young women who were emboldened by their increasing buying power and entering the workforce in growing numbers as young professionals. His designs were edgy, they were avant-garde, and they were largely inspired by the fantasy of the space race. He had these really great plastic eclipse glasses that had just this tiny slit in them. Um, they were called eclipse glasses. Um, and then these really kind of over-the-top large waste bucket hats that really looked like someone had flipped a trash can on top of um, these models' heads. Um, all in white. So his pants in particular sparked huge debate around their suitability for women in the workplace with camps dividing along both gendered and generational lines. Um, this frenzy around French fashion and its impact on American culture was really reaching a boiling point as the 1964 World's Fair approached. I just have to point out the incidental pun that you're wondering about pants suitability. <laughs> oh, very nice. I wonder too, is this kind of also partly informed by the idea that sort of started becoming more of a thing in like the mid fifties? Like I've, I've read a bit about um, like Audrey Hepburn and Sabrina and her collaboration with Givenchy sort of like, um, like kind of starting to instill the idea that women didn't necessarily have to dress for like the male gaze, but kind of like her sort of high, sort of higher necklines and kind of like different kind of shapes and structures to her gowns, sort of dressing for her own, like what was at the time not classically like beautiful body shape. Um, I wonder too, if that kind of like, if that sort of like era of like fashion kind of adapting like for women to feel confident in that is like suited to their bodies also kind of like led into like women can now dress functionally for themselves for the office because it's not just about like they're not going through the world in fancy clothing like to be basically taken in by the men around them but they're carrying out their own purposes as well. 
Totally. And um, Audrey Hepburn wears Courage's pantsuits and designs in How to Steal a Million. She has a waste bucket hat when she's in her tiny little coupe car in the early scenes when she's driving around Paris. Um, I will say... I want to fix that now. Mm. (laughs) I will say that his clothes were really designed for the Audrey Hepburn type woman, this very waif-like, thin, slim, and long woman. Um, There is a great quote that Diana Vreeland, who's the editor-in-chief of Vogue at the time, um, says in reaction to this debate around pants, that she says, pants are, women who look good in pants will always wear pants. They always have, they always will. The big thing to think about now is legs. This period is all about legs, which um, kind of hints at the coming youthquake and what we think about in the later 60s as the miniskirt and this... um, sexual and the sexual revolution that really um, gave women more empowerment in the way that they dressed. Um, This is a bit earlier than that, but it's all what's kind of laying the seeds and the foundations for what's to come. Cool. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So that's the the French team. Now on the American side, um, concurrent to this kind of reinvigorated appreciation of French design was this renewed effort by the American fashion industry to elevate the status of the American designer and promote their garments after World War II. So designers of this period are those like Bonnie Cashin, uh, Rudy Gernrich, who's the creator of the monokini, this very controversial topless swimsuit. Um, and other designers like Jeffrey Bean, who were part of this vanguard um, establishing a reputation for the creativity and high quality of American design that transcended these mass market replications of Parisian haute couture. The American fashion industry dedicated a ton of energy towards advocating for its importance and authority, which really came to a head at the World's Fair in Queens. So on May 25th, 1964, the Council of Fashion Designers of America, we know them as the CFDA uh, today. It was an organization founded just two years earlier uh, in 1962 by Eleanor Lambert to promote American design. The CFDA presented the first in a series of fashion shows at the US Pavilion of the World's Fair, making the claim that fashion be considered as seriously as other forms of art and industry on display. This first show presented the CFDA's vision of um, American, the state of American fashion and included looks by um, our fashion designers like Jeffrey Bean, who I just mentioned. Bean in particular showed um, an action skirt, it was called. It was part of a suit in his new fall collection, which used extra yards of fabric to create, quote, a flurry of pleats for easy striding. That's a really great phrase. Okay. <laughs> A flurry of pleats for easy striding. I really love that. Yeah, it was meant to enable the woman who wore his designs to move more deftly and with unencumbered steps. So if you think back to Victorian dressing, where often skirts are bustled, they're very narrow, you can't really walk and move around. This is kind of moving in a full um, other direction. Um, So this fashion show at the World's Fair was broadcast um, across America in a program that was hosted by Nancy White, who was then the editor of Harper's Bazaar, and it was the first fashion show to be televised in the U.S. People had seen fashion shows in film, um, maybe had heard about them, or if they'd been to a World's Fair previously, maybe had been able to experience them um, in person, but never at this kind of scale of replication. Um, So... Not only was this perspective on American fashion that um, the CFDA was presenting at the World's Fair um, 
making an important claim about the status of women in America, um, but it was also making an important claim about American women as the country was presenting itself to other nations abroad. Um, American fashion had not only firmly inserted itself into the sphere of serious art and industry by participating at the World's Fair, but it also took on this role as a cultural ambassador in the midst of rising Cold War tensions, which kind of perfectly suited itself to the U.S.'s political agenda by emphasizing the increasingly prominent role of women within its borders. This first televised fashion show then uh, represents a significant moment in the development of American fashion that began in the 19th century and kind of reached a, a zenith in the 1964 World's Fair. I love the idea of like fashion as diplomacy. Were there, I mean, were there any like Soviet delegations, fashion delegations to the 1964 World's Fair? I don't know. Or vice versa? Yeah. They, I, in the um, kind of cultural diplomacy program of the U.S. of this time, they were really looking to avant-garde art. Um, so Martha Graham, who is um, the great choreographer and dancer who really shifted modern dance away from classical ballet into something more experimental and avant-garde, she um, stages a ballet um, around this time of a reimagining of Phaedra, um, and it takes on this kind of very feminist um, approach. And this was seen as very um, uh, kind of titillating and controversial to American audiences, but it was adopted by this program of cultural diplomacy and shown all around the world. And it just wouldn't do to have an American program censored when that's the very crux of what Americans are trying to say they stand against. Um, so even though it you know, went so far as to be discussed in congressional hearings and discussed um, as far as um, how the American public could possibly stand to see such salacious things on a stage, it ended up being kind of the perfect um, piece to represent the U.S. abroad. All right, so it's time for our quiz. Um, so, of course, because our theme is World's Fairs, um, <laughs> this quiz will be all about the different inventions you may have heard of, but you didn't know they were debuted at World's Fairs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, had to, I had to cut out that question. <laughs> Um, I actually just switched it to a different invention that was also at that same World's Fair. Mm. So Ooh, it okay. Was, it was okay. fertile ground for quizzes. <laughs> All right, so question one. What invention debuted at a World's Fair caused Brazil's Emperor Dom Pedro to famously say, my God, it talks? What was the invention? Furby. Furby. <laughs> you are absolutely right. <laughs> no, it's not a No. I got so excited. Wow. I mean those things were huge. I wouldn't have I honestly I wouldn't have been that surprised. They weren't very they were popular. They weren't huge. They were just... Yeah, well yes, but they took the world by storm. <laughs> they and, and you know how we projected? We projected that those were gonna take the world by storm with our leeches. okay so what invention debuted at a world's fair caused brazil's emperor dom pedro to famously say my god it talks Um, oh emperor yeah when do we think brazil last had an emperor have the right name but like conceptually 
Mm. I'm imagining something where it's like you enter text into a machine and it converts it to like of like a like a vocoder sort of situation. Maybe. Like a machine that you tell it to say a thing and it says a thing and he's like, oh. But it's a machine. I I was imagining like a kitchen appliance for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> like your food is done. <laughs> have, oh my god, it talks. <laughs> I haven't cooked whatever I was making well enough. I have, I have a rice cooker that um, plays the tune to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star when it's done cooking rice. So, oh. you know. Oh, very <laughs> sweet. <laughs> okay, so what's the answer? Uh, so, uh, things that make voice noises would be like radios. That's kind of where my I'm landing on this one, but I don't know. Mm. Okay. Um, Marconi was like the 20s, right? For radio, he... I think. That's the sound of certainty. As Rob nodded. I was just like... <laughs> just like... <laughs> uh, with all the certainty of a leech. Um... <laughs> all right, final final answer. <laughs> if we say um, device... <laughs> Does that get us a loophole answer? <laughs> Do you be able to answer to be a device? <laughs> I'll say it's a device. Okay. okay. We got it! Um, <laughs> the answer was the telephone. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Huh. Even earlier than I thought. Yeah, yeah, it was 1876 at the Philadelphia World's Fair. Wow. Um, Alexander Graham Bell first introduced his invention of the telephone. Which really freaked out the emperor of Brazil. Mm. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> it talks... Yes, that's the point. <laughs> um, okay, question two. So we've discussed on this podcast before how the Eiffel Tower was first built um, for the 1889 World's Fair in Paris. Um, my question to you is how long was it supposed to be up for? It wasn't intended to stay up forever. They intended to tear it down. But how long did they want to give it? Ooh, a, a lot of these expos are slated for like six months to a year um yeah that's what i, I was gonna go eight which is right in the middle of that. <laughs> yeah and I'll also i think as as our previous you know our tradition is with the fax machine honor code is that i will all, i will also let you decide what you think a fair margin of error is mm. okay then i think might, if we I get might. the the scale of time correct so if it if we answer in months and the I would say uh, go for years. I'll oh. say how many years with this supposed to stand for. Okay. Okay, that already changes our answer then. Yeah. Or at least for me. Um. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty expensive to build an Eiffel Tower, so maybe fifty years. I don't know. Like, or if you build a grand thing, would you like take it down in a hundred years? I don't know. Now, I now was going to no say like two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like two is how long the whole thing would be. Ugh. Well, because it's weird because, it, I mean, I feel like if it was something that was meant to be up for a, a fairly short amount of time, like under five years, they wouldn't have built it as sturdily as they did. Maybe that's well, wrong, but like... But I people mean, still have to go up it's it. built to last. Like the first Ferris wheel was yeah. built and taken apart in about two years. I think that was in Chicago. The um, Chicago wheel. Yes. <laughs> it was originally called. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So maybe it is um, two, okay. two years. Yeah. And our, our window is elsewhere or not. Maybe maybe we should say ten years, and our window is plus minus ten years. 
That's <laughs> uh, anywhere between zero and twenty years. Yeah. 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 Okay. The answer was 20 years. Oh! <laughs> barely got it. It was, uh, it was intended to be taken down 20 years later, so in uh, wow. 1909, I think. That's, it was 18, uh, 1889 to 1909, yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, so we <laughs> briefly just discussed uh, in, your, in your deliberation about the Eiffel Tower, <laughs> you mentioned the first Ferris wheel. Um, so my question, so basically in 1893, George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. was tasked with creating a landmark that would be like equal and sort of like scale to the Eiffel Tower and just to like wow people on that sort of level, like some big mechanical structure that could do something really cool. Um, so the question is how many people could fit on the first Ferris wheel? I have to give Again. a disclaimer. A disclaimer? That, that I was reading about this earlier today. Okay, do you, that, okay, that nice. <laughs> it's over 2,000 people. It's like um, 2,100 2, something people total. Wow. Um, wow. Because there were like 36 gondolas and they were each supposed to hold like 50 or 60 people. Wow. Am I totally off? Uh, well, there were, there were 36, as you said, gondolas or cars, so I'm pretty impressed. Um, I, I want to ask, though, uh, what's your final answer? So do we want to say, okay, so 36 times 50 is 1,800. So maybe 2,000 plus minus 500. Okay, well, you could have gone way less than that. Okay. Cause I think uh, Christina said 2,100. It was 2,160. Yeah, so uh, it was 260 feet tall. Uh, it had 36 cars and could hold 2,160 uh, 2, people at once. Um, it was very popular and cost each person 50 cents each in 1893. So. And wow. how much of that money did Ferris get? None of it. Absolutely none of it. <laughs> yeah. He, he died like shortly thereafter, completely destitute. I'm afraid yeah. to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what goes around comes around. Um, <laughs> Ferris wheel. <weird. laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to find. He to deserve to die. Yeah. <laughs> I think he was an okay dude, but I can't. I can't really say either. <laughs> oh, okay. Anyway, sorry, George. Poor guy just wanted a day off. <laughs> All right. Question four: Josephine Garris Cochran debuted her biggest invention in 1886 after years of trying to find a way to do what faster than her servants. Oh, did she invent the dishwasher? Ooh. Oh. Oh. Cochran. Um... It might be. So I, I, he mentioned that my, my mind went to laundry. So now I'm wondering if it's like, like laundry machine. Because of like a big machine that would have soap and water in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was the year for this again? Uh, 1886. It was, okay. it was debuted. Okay. So both okay, so dishes both and dishes clothing, clothing existed. <laughs> Check that. <laughs> also servants. But I'm sorry. It was also, it was, um, it, the World's Fair, it was debuted. That was 1893. Mm. I think it was, it was like introduced in 1886, but when it became popular, um, just, it was so, more people knew about it in 1893. Oh, okay. In Chicago, Sears Tower Seal, Sears sells probably both dishwashers and washing <laughs> machines. But <laughs> just, I'm just drawing lines between the dots now. <laughs> the red string's coming out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, 
right, what do y'all think it was? Mm. What she wanted to do faster than her servants? This is also like peak textile moment for interiors and dressing where everyone had a tablecloth and 10 different things Mm. over their windows and 50 different things on their bodies. If we feel like finding some rationalization out of nowhere. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm team laundry now. I'll go team laundry. All right. We're team laundry. <laughs> All right, chalk up a victory for team dishwasher. <laughs> um, okay, so question five. What was special about the picture that Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen took of his wife's hand? X-ray. Nailed it. Oh, yeah. Röntgen, yeah. <laughs> it was an X-ray yeah. picture of his wife's hand. In fact, the picture, you can see her wedding ring on it. So you see, like, the bones and, like, the wedding ring around her finger, which is really interesting. Ooh. Um, so uh, at the same world's fair where x-rays were sort of like popularized and debuted that was in uh the st louis world's fair in 1904 um so there was an x-ray machine that was debuted there uh that was also the world's fair where ice cream cones and also fax machines uh, were also debuted um i also want to say i just realized that in my notes here i have spelled fax machine F-A-C-T-S and not F-A-X. Yeah, I had to correct a few instances that myself. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So Poor ice cream cones, x-rays, and fax machines all go together. Wait, you said 1904, 1904 St. Louis? St. Louis. St. Louis Was that not was also that where, not the also where, the where the Olympics were in 1904? I think so, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think they were. It's a solid, solid year, year St. Louis. year for St. Louis. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact about the ice cream cone. Um, it is in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art as a humble masterpiece, something very simple that does its job very, very well. Oh. I wouldn't really say that ice cream cones do a job very well. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think I've ever had an ice cream cone where my hands were completely sticky after that. (laughs) I'm a cup girl myself. (laughs) It's just more practical. I'm a cone and a cup girl. It's indulgent. Have you seen the waffle cup? (laughs) The waffle cup. The waffle cup is... The, I have, but I've not tried it. It's perfect because you like it melts in, yeah. and but you can like chip off pieces of the edge, and then you eat it. Like so, it's zero okay. waste, but also way less mess. What you really right, want right. for ice cream is one of those like taco salad shells. Mm. Mm, you know what I mean? Where like you want it to be like why? Where you can like scoop with the rim of the cone. You know, you don't want to worry about it like falling out. Yeah, that's true. Oh my god! Like ice cream cone chips could totally be a thing, though. Totally. Yeah. And the- Next World's Fair. We got it. <laughs> don't, don't tell anybody about it. We yeah. got it between us. <laughs> Cut this bit out. <laughs> okay, so question six. A 1927 demonstration of what technology prompted the New York Times to report, perhaps prematurely, commercial use in doubt? Um, 27? 27. Was this, okay, that time period makes me think television. I was going to say, it must be electrical. Yeah, it was television. Oh. I'll tell you. Wow. You got it right. So the, Is that Philo T. Farnsworth? Well, he invented the television. Okay. Yes. But it, was, um, it his was it his display? Or was it... Well, so I'll tell you, that part... So that, that 1927 uh, isn't the World's Fair part. The World's oh. Fair part... So first of all, I just want to say, the New York Times uh, led... I think the headline said, commercial use in doubt. And it wasn't actually That's the New York Times... Well, it wasn't actually the New York Times <laughs> saying that. It was them quoting Bell Labs. Oh. Oh. Wow. Because that was the big Westinghouse thing, right? I think because this is, this is actually from my fax machine episode one research. Because it, it was about the first recorded Olympics. And I looked into the first recorded anything. 
and humans didn't have enough contrast in your face. So we look like mannequins, basically. So the first television show was like some like very high contrast makeup doll with like red, red lips. Uh, oh, right. So the World's Fair part uh, is that the day broadcast television was born uh, is, is uh, recounted as April 30th, 1939. And that is President Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivering the opening address at the New York World's Fair, mm. uh, which NBC broadcast the speech to homes all across the country for the very first time. So that is like held as the the first broadcast television event. Um and it and it, it homes across the country just 12 what is that yeah just 12 years after the new york times <laughs> said it was commercial use was in doubt okay um so coca-cola uh in the early 80s wanted to introduce a new flavored coke so they had coke they had diet coke and they wanted like the first flavored coke so they made a bunch of different flavors and they basically offered them as like everyone who went to the 1982 World's Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee, Rob, hey. which, you, which you have discussed with us. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if in the podcast or out of the podcast yet, but at some point, <laughs> we'll see. Um, so one of Rob's favorite World's Fair, the 1982 uh, World's Fair in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so my question to you is, what did fairgoers choose as their favorite flavor of Coke, which soon became the first flavored Coke? Ooh. Cherry? There's there's cherry, there's vanilla. Like oh, vanilla. Vanilla's later oh. though, right? Remember this, 1982. I mean, and it's still I mean, Coke, it's still right? Coke, it didn't like right? it become, didn't, like, become sprite, sprite or something. Or something. Like this flavor. Like this flavor. Um, no, no, it's still... Like a Coke. A. Well, I, yeah, it's, it's Coke brand plus the name of a flavor. Oh, okay. Oh. It's like flavor Coke or Coke flavor or something like that. Oh, so did, did people do something ridiculous and it's like Coke strawberry and it's just like some awful fruity drink? Because it was the 80s. Like, this was <laughs> this the was 1982. Were made, yeah. <laughs> like, you saw the commercial for the 1982 World's Fair. Crazy things are happening. Yeah. I think I'm leaning towards Coke cherry because, I mean, it's been around for a long time. It's still popular. And considering that they tried multiple flavors... Like, it's possible that, like, that one emerged and, like, was clearly a good flavor and had staying powder, power. Excuse me. Staying powder. Staying, yeah. <laughs> Not a good, had don't staying add, power. <laughs> and maybe they revisited the other ones, like, like over time. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um, but that's my, that is my reasoning. I actually think this might be a famous kind of taste test failure where one taste was great, but then it was so bad that it never sold. And it is, like, Coke like vomit but everyone was like <laughs> one, one sip was not bad just birdie bots coke yeah. um so one that we've never heard of I, that's kind of what think? i think and that the answer is okay. just a ridiculous flavor that will not make sense okay. um coke fried oh. chicken <laughs> oh that might be good i kind of like, like it coke hummus let's go I like things together, but separately. yeah I'm, i might say coke hummus is nice. i might say orange that would be my guess Ooh. Okay. I mean, I, I could see them trying that, so. All right. All right, so, you, so you, just to be clear, you're saying that Coke debuted Coke Orange. <laughs> I, orange Coke. I think we might all be going in a different direction on this one. Okay, so what's, well, how about this? <laughs> each of you choose what you think it is, and we'll do this individually. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. I, you, can, you can say the same answer. I say orange. Say orange. Splitting up the band. Okay, Rob says cherry. orange. <laughs> Emily cherry. cherry. Yeah. I'll go cherry. Okay. Uh, Rob, you 
have been voted off the podcast <laughs> because it was, it was cherry coke. Dang it. Okay. <laughs> you tried so hard to derail the cherry coke. But I didn't want to bring anyone down with me. <laughs> I mean, they knew that yeah, they did. You were trying to, even though you were trying to derail cherry coke, you also countered with coke bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm glad that this is a half-hearted effort, I guess. I'm glad that Christina and him were able to see through your lies. <laughs> um, okay, so final question, question eight. At the ni- 1964 World's Fair in New York, also one we've discussed. There was a booth in which you could communicate with people at Disneyland in California using what technology? AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> I was going to say, like, say a... it, is, it is an improvement on AOL Instant Messenger. Is in, it, in concept. Is it like oh, a, I'm imagining like a video chat, like a... That is exactly oh! right. Oh! Really? Yes. In 1964, <laughs> Bell Labs, which originally wasn't so keen on this moving picture image, <laughs> <laughs> um... 1964 Bell Labs introduced the picture phone, which allowed callers to basically, you know, we were using a phone and then cameras hooked up. You could see who you were talking to on the phone, like on a video screen. Um, so you could step into like an individual booth and video chat, uh, like, you know, Zoom, like we're doing like right now. now. Yeah, it's, it's lost its novelty over time. Which is pretty <laughs> remarkable that in 1964 that had sort of been established. That is it took a while insane. for that to really. Over phone cables, like I I have a lot of questions actually about how how that signal traveled. Oh, I'll direct you to Bell Labs. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I will Google that for myself later. (laughs) All right, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening, Christina. It was wonderful to have you on this episode. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. This was the best. Uh, you can check us out on social media at Facts Machine Pod and on Facebook at Facts Machine Podcast. And if you'd like to follow us, I'm. Uh, at arcs in sciences m at underscore em costa rum at sweater vest sci and christina where can our listeners find you on social media uh k panda (laughs) cool is that on both twitter and instagram Ooh, uh k panda on instagram k m pars uh on twitter cool all right so check out christina and also, if they wanted to find you in the real world, say if they wanted to go to one of your museum exhibits in the future when we can go to things again. Yeah, come to the Jewish Museum on Museum Mile, the Upper East Side, um, or come hang out with me in the digital realm while quarantine is on. <laughs> <laughs> Facts Machine is produced by Noah Giverson, M. Costa, and Ron Frawley, with editing by Noah Giverson. Our theme music is by Anthony Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Thanks. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.